Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I've see, I see my segments lit up, so am I being heard loud and clear? Splendid. Yes. I'll start with the proposition that Britain has an exceptionally rich heritage of pre-Christian ceremonial monuments and artifacts, reflecting the huge range of pre-Christian cultures that made an impact on this island, which is unsurpassed in Europe, although it's equaled in some other parts. So if you're a, an inhabitant of modern Iceland, Scandinavian countries, Finland, most Mediterranean countries, and most parts of Eastern Europe, there is a single pagan heritage to which to look, a single pantheon of known deities with a set of monuments associated. Here in Britain, we have in historic records, the native religion here when the Romans arrived, religions from every corner of the Roman Empire, and then those of the Anglo-Saxons and of the Norse and Danes in the early Christian period. And looking at uh, the prehistoric ages, we have the full range from Paleolithic cave carvings, Mesolithic ceremonial masks, Neolithic chambered tombs and stone circles, Bronze Age round barrows and circles, and the huge Iron Age enclosures, formerly called hill forts. And from the late 19th century, these have increasingly been excavated, protected, and taken into state guardianship and displayed to the public. But not until recently were they widely held to have any sense of lingering sanctity attached. The archaeologists and civil servants concerned with them for the first hundred years of the process I've described were either Christian or agnostic or atheists. And although they were fascinated by the ancient cultures that produced the sites, which they excavated and for which they cared, they had no sense of kindred spirituality with them. And therefore these groups, archeologists and heritage managers were quite surprised when a significant modern pagan movement appeared in Britain from the 1950s onwards. And it's not a coincidence that an island which has such a complex and vibrant historic and prehistoric pagan heritage should produce such an early and vibrant modern paganism. British paganism as coalescing between the 1950s and 1970s forms the template for paganisms across the Western world subsequently. And many British pagans from the start focused on prehistoric sacred sites as sacred places for their own religion. Naturally, they focused in particular on those officially open to the public in the hands, according to your area, by the 80s of English Heritage, Cardew, Historic Scotland, or the National Trust. And a complex and sometimes fraught relationship resulted. And from my point of view, that relationship has taken two stages 
each one equally uncomfortable for myself, but for very different reasons. The first stage was from the 1970s to the 1990s, and it was characterized by much hostility to pagans on the part of archaeologists and site managers. And this hostility has a long history stretching back beyond the collision with card-carrying pagans. The early 20th century Druid orders, societies that appeared from the Edwardian period onwards and weren't actually pagan, but had a syncretic religion in which Christianity, Eastern faiths, and ancient Greek philosophy were mixed together, still settled on ancient sacred sites, especially Stonehenge, as sacred places of their movement. And each time they gained some success, archeologists tried to drive them out. In the 1970s, Druid orders successfully applied to the government for the right to inter the cremated ashes of their own dead at Stonehenge. And the result was a large and successful public campaign launched by archeologists to drive them out, resulting in the first comprehensive book on Druids by an archeological leader, Sir Thomas Kendrick of the British Museum, which went out of its way to characterize modern Druids as charlatans with no right to any sacred site. In the 1960s, Druids were allowed to return to Stonehenge and attracted large crowds. And that incurred more public condemnation from the archaeological community. Above all, Glyn Daniel and Stuart Piggott, who published the next big book on Druids after uh, Sir Thomas Kendrick, devoting even more space to excoriating modern Druids as pointless interventions in the authentic history of Druidry, which should be about a long dead ancient world. And this sense lingered in the succeeding decades that people who identified now spiritually with those who built the monuments were in some ways frauds, imposters, generally inauthentic. Uh, and they could be practical nuisances. In the early years, pagans using ceremonial monuments were not always careful about the refuse they left behind them. Candle wax, offerings of fruit and flowers became a genuine problem, and occasionally it still is. But there was still a wider sense that these people shouldn't be at these places at all, that the very basis of their claim was wrong. Now, there were increasing voices of opposition to this idea, people who spoke up for the right of pagans to use these places. Uh, Chris Chippendale, Tim Darville, and yours truly being, being three of those who published most obviously or acted most obviously for it. And the basic argument, which in different ways we used, is that as archaeologists had always admitted since the beginning of the 20th century, we actually can't get into the heads of prehistoric people. And so although we can reconstruct with increasing accuracy their chronology, their ethnicity, their technology, their diet, their medical pathology, 
and the nature of their living spaces and their structures. We still have no idea of their social arrangements, their politics, and their religious beliefs. So it's really up to anybody who wants to provide conjectural reconstructions of those. And if that is true, then the conjectural reconstructions provided by modern pagans of ancient religion, prehistoric religion, are as good as anybody else's, providing they stay within the limits of the known evidence. And on the whole, that's what pagans increasingly did. So there was a shift. These arguments worked. And by the 2000s, heritage managers and archaeologists were increasingly viewing pagans as a special interest group within the general public whose interests should be served along, the, along with those of other groups in the general public as part of the responsibility to the public on the part of their disciplines. Special access was being granted to prehistoric monuments for which there was a, a pay regime, most notably Stonehenge, outside public visiting hours that could accommodate pretty well anything anybody wanted to do by way of a ritual, as long as it didn't leave a, leave a mess and didn't damage anything and wasn't too noisy. Uh, this was a perfect working arrangement. And so the whole problem should thereby have been resolved. But we entered stage two of the problems from the late 2000s. And this was that after being granted status as a special interest group with connection with prehistoric monuments. Some pagans began to claim a unique right to represent the ancient peoples concerned. This claim had been made earlier, but been made largely as a reaction to the hostility shown by the power brokers in the equation. Now some seem to move beyond that and try to invade the, the remit of archeologists and heritage managers and attempt to prescribe the way in which sites were conserved, excavated and used by others. Uh, this took a number of forms. One was uh, an automatic demand of right of entry to restricted sacred sites uh, and without payment. The second was a right to decide if archaeologists should excavate in certain places or not, and if they did excavate, how, and a right to decide the conservation measures then taken. The most famous flashpoint here was a Bronze Age timber circle in Norfolk, which the media dubbed Sea Henge, which uh, became a coast celebre of collision between heritage managers, museum managers, archaeologists, and a constellation of pagan groups. And the third demand was to be able to determine how human bones dug out of ancient graves and sacred sites were displayed in museums. Uh, this was in many ways a demand that rose from a Christian view of the dead. The argument being, and on the face has some legitimacy, that archeologists have always respected Christian graves to some extent with a right uh, to 
consider the remains as eligible for reburial and uh, a general sense that sacred ground was being disturbed, which wasn't applied to the older dead. But it extended further to a demand to determine how bones were displayed in museums. And again, the sense that these pagan groups could be custodians of the artifacts concerned uh, and the human bodies concerned, uh, rather than simply a group with a special interest in them. You, you can judge from my tone here that this is the point at which I had to change sides, having lobbied for the right of pagans to be regarded as a special interest group. I had now to argue for the right of archaeologists and heritage man managers to deny the claims that were now being made upon them, uh, because I couldn't have it both ways, and nor could anybody making the argument. If what we were asking for was an equality among the public with special access granted for special occasions and special needs, but otherwise a level playing field in prehistory in which anybody's conjectural reconstruction was as good as anybody else within the evidence, then to acknowledge that pagan groups or some of them had some kind of hotline to the ancient dead and a right to speak for them in their voices uh, simply because of their heritage claims what was simply not permissible. Now, at the end of this decade, things seem to have settled down for the time being. The more extreme demands that I have mentioned have been refused, but the display of human bones in museums has become more sensitive and more restricted, and that's generally recognized as a, a good outcome. And some archaeologists are actually inviting pagans to bless the opening of their excavations and thereby admitting them to some sense of spiritual partnership in the process, uh, allotting them a role which perhaps they can fulfill. But the situation is uneasy. To conclude, this is an issue, and these are sites, and these are interest groups. I'm including archaeologists, academics, heritage managers as interest groups that operate across and against a number of fissures in our culture, that between the idea of a polyvocal society in which different viewpoints are valued, against that of an official message, uh, a story of England, uh, a communal history that can unite different ethnic groups and interest groups, a chasm between public demand and the sense that we are beholden to the public who are largely our paymasters and mistresses against that of the right of experts passing rigorous tests to be acknowledged by the nation as having a special right to speak for the nation and against many of the public in the views of how things should be viewed and run. The idea of the quest romance as a scholarly enterprise, the idea that you start with a question or a problem, you then have a narrative of how you find the answer, and then you find the answer, the scholarly equivalent of throwing the ring into Mount Doom, getting the golden fleece, or achieving the holy grail, against the idea of open-ended interpretation that we can never know a lot about the past, 
are therefore having more and different ideas about it, often side by side, is the healthiest outcome. And finally, the idea of multiculturalism against the plea for an abiding national narrative, which can keep together the English, the Welsh and the Scots, and every component ethnicity that is part of those realms. So in other words, the situation continues as one of indecision, potential confrontation, and the lack of any overriding approach or philosophy nationally or regionally or in interest groups, which can cater for the situation in which we find ourselves. I suppose the good news in all this is that it means that what we're doing together today and what we do as individuals actually matters. <laughs>